Good morning. Good morning. Make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. And uh, one thing that we've been doing every morning is we talk a little bit about Central City, which is a 19-neighborhood area just as probably orbiting around what most of us call Old North Knoxville, talking about the things that God is doing in that neighborhood, uh, discussing and praying for some of the churches and ministries that are active in that neighborhood. And, And today I wanted to go a little bit of a different route and talk about a big need we see there that I do think we could do a great job as a church. I mean, it's very easy for me to look at what other ministries and churches are doing in that area and think, man, what could we do to add to that? They're doing a great job, and they've been doing it for like 30 years or 50 years for such a long time. I don't know what we could even add to that. I mean, I could see us being a partner with it, writing checks to it, but I don't know if we could duplicate exactly what they're doing. One reason, one primary reason we even eyeballed that neighborhood years and years and years ago was the fact that that's primarily where the artistic pulse was radiating outward, I guess you could say, to the whole metro area. A lot of the art, not just art as far as what artists are producing, but where artists are being taught. You see a lot of venues where welders are teaching other welders how to weld, where painters are teaching other painters how to paint, where writers are learning how to write. That's all still gravitating from that old north area and the 19 neighborhoods around there. Now, that's happening in other parts of the county and other parts of the metro area, but primarily it's centered right there. Just the other day, me and my wife were driving around a big chunk of Central City, and we were just noticing time after time, well, there's another welder. And there's a person that they're teaching people how to screen print t-shirts. Someone has to learn. you got to learn somewhere, right? You don't get all of that off of YouTube. Um, so there, there are places, like little, little uh, areas, I guess, where artists and creatives are learning how to do something creatively. Now, I've had a lot of my thinking changed by intellectuals over my lifetime, but I've had a lot of my heart moved by artists whether I've read something. I'm reading a book right now. It's an old novel. And as I read it, it is moving me. It's shifting my emotions around. I've seen images. Paintings don't do it so much for me, but really good photography does, right? I'll see a very powerful moment in time captured, and it makes me struggle, or it makes me excited. We've always, as a church, wanted to be a part of teaching other artists how to extend God's grace and show and display God's glory through the arts whether it's the writing of a book, a poem, a song, a picture, a statue, a a tile mosaic, whatever it might be. That's something that I do think we can do well as a church. We have a lot of creatives here, and that is one of the reasons we even, even thought or considered that part of town was the fact, not just because there's a lot of impoverished people there. That's not it. That's not the totality of why we want to be there. We also want to be there because that's a cultural change center for not just Knoxville, but for the whole area. So what I'd like to pray for is that God would help us as a church of artists and as a church of creatives, not just be better at art, but learn how to teach others how to display God's grace and glory through the arts. it's, It's harder to do that than it is to say that. That's why we don't see a lot of churches and ministries doing that. There'll be a church here and a ministry there that they dabble in it a little bit, but they'll even be quick to tell you themselves, it's very hard for us to do this, right? I mean, there's a difference between just being a Christian artist and a Christian artist who's displaying God's grace through the arts and teaching others and mentoring and discipling others to do that. So whether it's a musician, 
a visual artist of some sort, I'd love for us to pray this morning that God would show us and give our leaders even more of a refinement on how we can do that. How we can do that. Because I do think that is a, if you want to use the term market share, that we could chisel in on almost immediately whenever we move there. So just pray with me. Father, I thank you for the fact that you have given us emotions that can be moved, that you've given us emotions that can propel us to action. And a lot of times, Father, it's the arts. Somehow, whether it's a song or whether it's something visual that we see or something that we feel, tactile. I mean, there's some way that you've engineered us, God, to be moved powerfully by the arts. It's not just an extracurricular thing. It's something very key, very important to you. So, Lord, as a church, we want to do a good job with that. It's one of the reasons we came to Knoxville. It's one of the reasons we've looked at that neighborhood is because we have felt you calling us towards that type of ministry to the city. So, Father, give us refinement as ministers and leaders as a church. Corporately, we have some brilliant artists. Lord, that we would be able to combine our thoughts, that we would be able to discern a good path forward. Because, Lord, I know right now as we speak, there are people walking around very, very far from you, very far from you. And, Lord, I just wonder, I wonder if there are things that you have in line for us to do artistically, creatively, that will minister the word to them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, turn in your Bible um, to Matthew 22. This is going to be a fun passage for us today as we finish our series on having without owning. So we've been trucking through this series since the very first of the year, how to have things but not necessarily own them. And we're going to finish today with a topic probably rarely taught on. It's not one I've ever taught on. But I want to start with the passage, not the one you're turning to. It'll be one we throw up on the screen. But it's a strange moment in the Bible. In the New Testament, it's kind of bizarre how it sticks out. It involves Jesus, his bewildered disciples, a group of pig herders, and an insane, crazy, naked guy. Right? We see a man possessed with demons not able to be subdued, living in tombs, living in graves, shrieking all the time, and he comes bolting out of a grave, bolting out of a tomb that would hold dead bodies, right? We've all lived in some dumps. None of us have lived in a tomb with dead, decaying bodies. He comes out of that scarred by how he'd done himself damage and goes straight to Jesus. Jesus loves him, cures him, and then puts him in his right mind. This is where it talks about this or what happened right afterward in Luke 8, 34. It's going to be up on the screen, so stay where you're at. It says this, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Before Jesus, this guy was out of his mind. He was out of his right mind, cutting himself, hurting himself, shaming himself, isolating himself, crying, shrieking. He he was tormented physically. He was tormented uh, emotionally. He was tormented mentally. His thinking wasn't anywhere close to straight. No logic. He made no sense. He was out of his mind. Then Jesus comes. And Jesus puts him in his right mind. And that's what I see in this. And for me, this passage is always framed a little bit of a continuum. 
those who are out of their mind and those who are in their mind, right? And if I could be honest for a moment, right? I find myself every day somewhere between in my right mind and totally out of my mind, right? Now, I don't cut myself. I'm not shaming myself. That is a real thing, and that's a totally different sermon. I don't, I'm not carried by my thoughts to, to destruction that looks like that, but I know all too well what it feels like to have my thoughts carry me to destruction. You know, I have moments where I hear in my ear, Luke, you are all alone, and you're going to fail, and you're going to be destroyed, and you're going to be ruined, and no one's going to save you, and God is not here for you. That's what I hear. And it puts me out of my mind with panic or stress, depression, anxiety, and I start trying to work salvation for myself. I try to start fixing my problem. Just panic and illogical thinking wash over me. I start feeling a little bit more and more like this guy living in the tombs. But then Jesus comes, and he gently touches me, and he leads me to sit in my right mind. I think you're like me. I think you are. I mean, some days don't we have thought, thinking, that is led and inspired by the Holy Spirit. We think creatively, innovatively, right? We think in ways that worship God. We trust easily. We, we uh, have confidence, seemingly easy. And, and we're good help to ourselves. We're help to those around us. But don't we have thinking where it's not like that? Aren't there days that are not like that? Where we have no control over our thinking, it feels like, and thoughts just cruise in and they cruise right on out. Wrapped in blankets of anxiety and unbelief. And on those days, it's very difficult for me to put words together. I hope I'm not being too transparent for you. I don't think I am. I think all of us, to some degree, to some level, struggle with how our thoughts can carry us very quickly to different levels of destruction. We may not be insane. We are definitely not in our right mind, right? May not be totally out of our mind, but we are definitely totally not in our right mind. Let me change gears for a moment and come from a different side to the same point I'm trying to make, okay? Because there's something that keeps coming up in the news over and over again. Any day you turn it on, there could be wars going on, elections going on. This is always in the news. And it's the discussion about privacy policy, or identity theft. Don't we see that? It's on repeat all the time. The big question is, is who has access to your information and what exactly are they doing with it? Who has access to your information and what are they doing with it? Because we are more mindful than ever as a people regarding our identity, our info, those things that we have locked up just for us. And it's frightening, isn't it, to have your identity stolen? Some of you have had your identity stolen, right? It's I guess it's hard just to think and be comfortable knowing that someone is buying something in your name, selling something in your name, committing a crime in your name, ruining your credit in your name. But as scary as that is, I think there are many people who would be totally fine with someone stealing their identity as long as it meant that their browsing and their purchasing history could stay hidden. That's even more stressful to think that someone has access to that. I think that stresses a lot of people out. The fact that somewhere, someone sees what they're thinking because of what they're looking at on screen is displayed before them. So many people looking at things, buying things, tracking things, researching things. 
thinking that it's all covered, thinking that it's incognito, when realistically, it's not. And that is super frightening to many people. The fact that their very thoughts are on display, right? You see, there is no such thing as a secret. There is no such thing as a secret. Safari in 2005 came out with a function in their browser that would allow you, if you wanted to, to surf without being tracked or without letting the browser track you in certain ways. Three years later, Google came out with incognito mode, which does the very same thing, right? Some of you have toyed around with using that part of the browser. You have to ask yourself, why is that so important to you? So you like the appeal of having your thoughts and your deepest desires come up on the screen, whether you're buying or looking at something, thinking that it's covered. But it's not covered because there's no such thing as a secret. God sees everything. Even the things that you hope no one sees in your mind, he already sees. Some of you have had things even this morning pop through your mind, and it flashes just for an instant, doesn't it? I mean, it's always so fast, and you always think to yourself, gosh, if anyone saw what I just thought, they would think totally different about me, right? If they, if they knew what just went through my mind, they would think that I was a murderer, that I was some sort of a, a horrible person, that I was a pervert. They would think that I was insane. If they, if they saw what I just saw in my mind, it's frightening. Did you know that God sees every thought? And even though it might flash as an instant in your mind, he sees it in slow motion to great detail. There is no such thing as a secret. We hear in the Psalms, the psalmists say, you discern my thoughts from afar. You discern, not just see, you discern my thoughts from afar. The psalmist goes on to say, even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. You know even the things that I'm thinking about saying that I haven't even said yet. You see, creation judges creation by what we outwardly do and display before all, but the creator judges creation by the very thinking that drives our actions. It's important to him. In Hebrews 4.12, we see that the word discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The thoughts. This is the key word today. That it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Who? God. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we see in these two passages, the Psalms, we see in Hebrews, the fact that our our thoughts, our mind, and our heart, because those overlap, at least in today. The ancient world, maybe not so much today they do, right? They're not watertight terms. But locked up in this bank vault we call the mind and the heart are things that we think are totally private but they're open and they're exposed to the very one who formed us. And sometimes these thoughts that we have, that we harbor, we create. Like lust, we create that. Envy, bitterness, unforgiveness, jealousy, covetousness. There's a long list of things that we create. And here it is. We don't even need any raw material to create those things, do we? We just need to be awake. (laughs) And we can make those things happen. But then there are certain thoughts that come to us that we don't necessarily want to create or want to form. How about anxiety, fear, depression? They slam into us like a raging flood. And we always think to ourselves, I'm not asking for this. I don't want to be stressed out right now. Here's a key statement I want you to hear. Regardless of how our thoughts take shape, 
Whether you made them or you caught them, regardless of how your thoughts take shape, you are responsible for how you handle them. You are responsible. Regardless of how you got them, you're responsible for how you handle them. What exactly does it mean to have but not own your very thoughts, your thinking life? How do you manage that? How do you steward what runs through your brain? And I'm not talking about just cussing someone out in your mind, even though that could be part of it. You ever cussed out someone in your mind? No? Okay. Have you ever spoken with someone, and as they look at you, you think to yourself, I think they're cussing me out in their head. (laughs) That happens, right? Never undressed anyone with your eyes, with your mind. We're not just talking about that. I'm also talking about the dumb ideas we pull from society and pop culture, and we think, hmm, I like that idea about God. I'm going to make that my own personal value about God. We just let weird ideas come in and start to form our theology. What about fears? Depressions that seep underneath us. The anxieties that smother us. Talking about all of these things. And Jesus has a lot to say. So let's look at that passage on Matthew 22. Jesus is teaching and he says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is saying here doesn't require a lot of exegetical homework, right? He's basically saying that we are to devote our entire being, the core of our personhood, to him. Again, mind, soul, heart, sometimes you'll see strength in a very parallel version of this. Those are not airtight. They they overlap and they mingle with one another. But God says he owns them all. He owns your thinker, your wanter, your doer, and everything that ties it together. That private inner person, it all belongs to him. You just manage it. Consider this for a moment. Just think about this. We don't even own the most core and central part of our very own personhood. We just manage it. That goes against everything in us, doesn't it? We feel this inalienable right to think whatever we feel like thinking. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, I own it all, and it's all to be devoted to me. Sometimes we manage our thinking life well. Sometimes we don't, right? Most of the time, we're just hovering in between. Hovering in between, living with great intention with what rolls through our mind and with no intention at all with what rolls through our mind. And like a city with no walls, our heart, our life is open for attack when we let unguarded thoughts just come in and do whatever they want. So there's a couple lies I want to go through. I'd like to look at what the lies we believe when we stop managing, we stop ordering, we stop just taking dominion and stewarding the very thoughts, even the core part of who we are, the thinking, what it looks like. We basically change the shape of God. One lie is this. God has no eyes, so he can't see what I'm thinking. It goes like this. I can think whatever I want. God can't really see what I'm thinking, and it's definitely not hurting anyone. I mean, as long as the private things stay private and they don't get out of the cage, if you know what I mean, they're not apparent for everyone to think or see or, or, or measure. As long as that doesn't happen, I'm fine. I can think with whatever I want. It's a fight here for purity. Many of us are losing, right? This is actually the lie that feeds an addiction to pornography 
or a bitterness or unforgiveness that has spanned decades. This, this feeling that I have the right to think whatever I want. Nothing can stop me. So for some of us, God has no eyes. He cannot see what I am thinking. Another lie is God has no heart and doesn't care what I'm thinking. And this isn't a fight for purity as much as it is a fight for good theology or right thinking about God. I can believe anything I want about God. It's up to me. Just because God says I have to look at him this certain way, I don't feel like it. I like this guy's view or that guy's view or, or that person's view or this group's view on how I should look at God. And after all, my views are valid as well. I'm going to substitute what that says in the word with what I think. This isn't a fight for purity. It's a fight for theology. And again, many of us are losing this as well. Have you ever bumped into someone that has a conviction? Something will roll off their tongue and it will almost sound biblical. Or it'll almost make logical sense. And for a moment, you even catch yourself going, hmm, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. Wait a minute. But that's not quite biblical, though. You ever catch yourself talking with someone? How about this one? I hear this from time to time. It's impossible to be a good Christian businessman. You have to be a good businessman, or you could be a good Christian, but you can't be both because you can only wear one hat at the same time, right? I hear that, and I get bored with that. Listen, there's a long line of people in the Bible who've shown us that you can do this. Solomon was a very good businessman. Barnabas, Lydia, David, the list goes on and on and on and on. People that were very good and shrewd at business but loved Jesus and would even take a hit, would even take a hit if it meant glorifying God. And I've known bunches of people that can do that. It's weird. But if it's said with conviction, you can tell a person has taken something that the world has thought and traded it out with what the Bible has taught. Another one we're starting to hear more and more now is because people are born with certain impulses, it can't be a sin to give in to those impulses. If I'm born with certain sexual impulses, it can't be a sin to give in to them. In fact, it would be a way of honoring God because I'm doing what he has made me to do. Doesn't that sound like it's coming from someone? Isn't it said with such a way that you're like, wow, is that right? That kind of sounds almost right. Except for the Bible totally disagrees. It's so easy. Two examples. There's a billion more of things we hear, things we read, and we think, I like that. I'm going to take that without measuring it up against what the word has already said. Another lie is that God has no arms, so he cannot control my sinking. See how we're changing the shape of God with these lies. He's got no arms. I can see everything, and God has left me. Everything I see is reality, and reality is what I see. God has abandoned me. He's not catching me. He's, in fact, dropping me. This is not a fight for purity. It's not a fight for theology. It's a fight for encouragement. And I'd say probably most all of us are fighting here, right? Is it always just a fight for encouragement? You see, all of these lies are not new. They're reprises. They're repeats of an original lie from an original dragon in an original garden who looked at your original parents and said this, certainly God is not who you thought he was. That's where it starts. Certainly God is not who you thought he was. Certainly everything you've known about God is wrong. We're hearing the same lie. You see, previously, before the fall, our parents, Adam and Eve, their thoughts were framed 
by God's glory. They began with God's glory in mind, and they ended with God's glory in mind. But after the plunge, they found themselves out of their right mind. And from then all the way up to today, we find ourselves outside of our right mind. Genesis 6-5 is a famous passage. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's such a condemning passage, is it not? I mean, we think almost for a moment, man, they were really jacked up until we realize we're kind of the same way. I mean, I'm just like this. And then the flood washes them all away. And the new people come, not behaving really any better. Judges come to rule these people. Judges come, judges go, doing what they feel is right and what? Their right mind. That's what it says, in their own mind. Then kings come and kings go, and they're actually doing a a worse job than the judges did many times. When you look at history, from Adam all the way up to the demoniac, all the way up to today, what we see is that in history, it's a demonstration and a play of people doing nothing more than living and leading outside of their minds, broken minds. So here's my question. How can we love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind when we cannot even control the next thing that flies through our brain? I mean, one minute you're quoting passage to somebody, you just finished praying with someone, and then two seconds later you're in some red light district in your mind that only you know how to get there, right? How do we do that? How can we manage our thoughts for God's glory when we cannot even see through the thick cloud that is our anxiety in our pain, in our depression, in our panic. How can we do that? You know what it's like. I mean, you're confident, and then you're a puddle. You're confident again, and then you're just a puddle of unbelief. You're confident again, and then you're just melting in anxiety and all of that in one afternoon. How do we gain stewardship over this? And listen, culture hates what I'm saying right now. Pop culture, they hate this teaching. Some of you are struggling with it right now. Because I'm saying that what you feel is core to you doesn't even belong to you. This is a big struggle. I think the church has taken a lot of what the world has believed, how our, our thinking belongs to us, and it is our right to think whatever we feel like thinking. I think the church has grabbed a lot of that. So I will say this with no regret. You don't have the right to think whatever you want to think. Friends, you don't have the right. You don't have the right to form whatever theology you want to form. It's not your right. You don't own those thoughts. You steward them. You order them. You don't have the right to look at people any way you want. You don't have the right to have unforgiveness. Hear me when I say this. You don't even have the right to let anxiety come in like a bully and wreck everything. We don't have the right to do that. We don't own our thoughts. We manage them. Culture is wrong, but we need an answer. We need an answer to this because it's impossible to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind except for in Jesus. Jesus is the pivot. He's the fulcrum in all of this equation, right? We need the same hero he did, the demoniac. We need the same hero that the demoniac needed to set our minds right, As we walk around out of our minds, 
with our minds and our thinking and our heart and our soul and our mind broken by a first Adam, but mended and fixed by a second Adam in Jesus. And we need the Holy Spirit to guide the way we think once we are set in our right minds. I mean, think about the beauty, the poetic irony in the passage that we started off with. You have a man, insane, and out of his mind, bursting from what? Graves and tombs. And he runs straight to a king who would later on come from an even worse tomb and an even worse grave to do a more magnificent work than just healing one person. He would heal a nation. He would free a broken nation from broken thinking. Jesus would come to you and me, a people who only think evil all the time, continually, every day, every second, even while we sleep. And he would set us free from our brokenness and set us next to him, thinking in our right mind. It's beautiful. It's beautiful what God has done for us. The beauty of the gospel and how it renews us totally. The beauty of the gospel is not that it just fixes you so that you will be in heaven. Not that it just fixes you physically or emotionally, but even mentally. Even our thinker is fixed. We see in Romans 12 a passage that we all know or many of us know or have at least heard in the second verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, there it is, mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we do this? How is our mind renewed in such a way that we order and manage and steward our thoughts better? This is where I'd like to get practical, if I can. All right, at least as practical as you can get. How do we order and manage our thoughts? One step, one thing I see, or a theme, you can say it that way, is that meditation on God's wisdom brings encouragement to our anxieties and doubts. Okay? Meditation on God's wisdom. I see in, in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, When I think of your rules of old, I take comfort. I would like to submit that when we have panic and anxiety creep in us, and man, it does smother you, right? I mean, I use the word smother, but I mean, can you think of a better word? It just caves our world in. It makes us to where we're not even able to think of anything else. It's all-encompassing what anxiety does. What I'd like to submit is when, when this happens, we rediscover and we revisit what God has done in the past. This sounds so basic, doesn't it? That's why we don't like it. We don't like basic things as people. We want the next thing. Give me a new thing, an innovative thing, the next chapter, next book, next thought, next idea, next sermon. Give me something new. Don't give me something old. Basics means returning to something. Meditation means slowing down. These are things we don't like to do when we're bumping into problems. Very simply, basic feels archaic. Basic feels unhelpful. There's a piece of us that says, if the basics worked, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I don't need something old. I need something new. I need something new to fix me here. We don't need new stuff as much as we need old stuff. Let me explain. Looking back on what God has done refurbishes the way we see what God is doing now. Looking back on what God has done in the past, it refurbishes, it changes, it fixes immense how we see with our eyes and think what God is doing right now in this moment. So we tell ourselves when we're in panic, and we tell ourselves when we're in anxiety, all right, Adam, 
Adam was in panic and anxiety. So we never think of Adam in that moment. But it says that they looked and they, 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 they felt and they saw and they understood that they were naked. And shame came upon them. We've all had shame come upon us. Shame is what happens when we look backwards and see how that's dragging us backwards. Anxiety is when we overlook forwards and it's kind of dragging us forwards. But we know, we know what it feels like to have shame punch on us and anxiety and panic punch on us. Imagine being Adam and feeling it for the first time. That feeling that you feel, he's felt it before. He was the very first person and man, probably was sickening. So Lord, Adam had that. I know that. But you were good to him. And you were present. You were not absent. You pursued him. You loved him. You covered him. You disciplined him. But you preserved him. You gave him things. You allowed him to derive sustenance from the land. You gave him a future. Lord, I remember. I remember reading about Israel just stuck between a massive body of water and a massive ticked off army. But you were there. You were there against all odds. You were totally there. And then, God, I remember that there was Jesus, dead, lifeless, cold, stuffed in a tomb, sealed up. Tomb is empty. God, you, you were there. Oh, and God, not only what I saw in the Bible, but just a few years ago when I was sick, you were there. When I was broke, you were there. When I was brokenhearted, you were there. Lord, you've always been there. You have to revisit the basics. This is what it looks like to have your heart refurbished to where you see you see that God is active right now. Because if you don't do that, you only hear the enemy saying, he's left you. He's gone. Sure, Luke's preaching, but you're not David, friend. And you're not Jesus or Paul or any of those people. You're different. You're a nobody. And God doesn't even know your name. He doesn't even know your situation. And if he did, he doesn't really care. That's what the enemy says. So boringly predictable, isn't he? That's what he says. But we go back to the basics. We take the old truths, the historical data of what God has done, and we brush them off, and we reposition them in our hearts, and we sing a new song right there in the midst of the pain. You know, my wife and I, this is how we encourage each other. When we moved to Knoxville, we, we didn't really know what it would look like the next several years. Now, zero regrets. This is the greatest season of our life. I'm loving it here. We're not leaving. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about this church. Never seen my, my marriage do this well. Never seen our parenting adapt and do this well. I've just never had this much fun. But in all honesty, it's the most discouraged we've been. It's discouraging. Starting something like this is discouraging. I guess what I'm saying is, is we never had to encourage each other on the clip and the pace that we we're doing it in the last few years. But this is how we do it. This is how we encourage each other. We remind each other of what God has already done historically. We remind each other of what God has done in our own lives. To be honest, we just remind each other of things that we already know. I already know these things. And isn't that what it feels like when someone tries to encourage you with historical things of what God has done for his people or for you individually? Don't you just, doesn't your heart just want to say, I don't want to hear that. I already know all of that. Those are basic. I already know all of that stuff. Give me something new. It's not something new we need to, to hear. It's something old we need to believe. That's where encouragement comes from. It's not new things heard. It's old things trusted. That's how we fight 
That's how we stay encouraged. And when we take the time to defragment and declutter our minds, God will show us Jesus. It's beautiful. Some of you in this room, you have been trying to get pregnant, been trying to find work, trying to find a man, trying to find a woman, trying to find direction, trying to find something. And all you hear is the enemy telling you, certainly, what you thought about God is not right. Right? Certainly, everything you've known about God is wrong. It's like the devil only knows one way of getting at us, almost. Very predictable. Stewardship of our thoughts, managing our thoughts, is a lot of times just letting wisdom and what God has done speak to our doubts. Listen, you cannot, cannot, capital C, cannot let those thoughts just run unchecked. You cannot let them drag you to despair. You've got to stop them in their tracks, and you've got to steward and manage and order those thoughts. If I could get even more practical, this is what it's looked like for me. I was reading in this book here recently. It's a book written for pastors. It's a fantastic book written by Zach Eswine. And he says this. He says, what do we do when we find ourselves constantly talking to a people or talking to a person in imaginary ways rather than directly talking to God about our pain? It's in this little section on imaginary conversations. Have you ever had imaginary conversations before? I have them all the time. Right? If you ever see me driving in my truck and you see me yapping away, yap, da, 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 and you look, there's no one else in the truck, I'm not Bluetoothed, I'm probably stressed about something. And I'm having an imaginary conversation about things that I would say if they said this. What would I do if they did this? And I'm already solving problems that don't even exist. But just in case they do exist, I'm going to solve them right now. Right? I'm way sticking myself out there today, aren't I? <laughs> I'm out of my mind in this moment. I'm trying to fix something. I have these imaginary conversations. They stress me out. They encompass my mind. And what Zach says here in total brilliance, I think, he finishes, he says, we make anxiety a real-time discussion with God. And yes, we may have to do this 50 times a day. Watch how many times you start a conversation in your mind and then it just starts coming out the mouth, stopping those things. Why am I stressed out? Why is that person or this situation causing me so much angst? And how can I turn that into a conversation with the Lord? Turn it into prayer. That's what it means to order and manage your thoughts. Not to let them run unchecked and do whatever they feel like doing, bullying you around and running, running the house. I think there's another way that we can do this, ordering our thoughts, and that's meditation on God's wisdom. It brings about correct thinking about God. I'm not going to spend as much time on these next two points, even though they're big points. But we are surrounded by an enemy. We're surrounded by pop culture. We're surrounded by very, very, very smart people that have ideas and views about God. And when we don't let the Bible open itself to us, and we don't let our hearts open to the truth of the Bible, and we don't know what God says about himself, we just start taking stupid things that people say and trading it in for our theology, and we ended up with, with some weird, warped way of looking at God. I love how it says this in Luke. Jesus opens their mind to understand the scriptures as he walks with the men on the way to Emmaus. He opened their mind to understand Paul later tells Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Listen, the, the, the most earth, 
shattering thoughts you've ever had about God, you didn't conjure those up. That's God's goodness to you. He just gave them to you. In his brilliance and in his architecture of history, he said, this is the right time for so-and-so to have this thought. Bam, the lights come on. You're like, holy smokes, I need to write that down. And you tell all your friends, right? I'm going to write a book about that someday. Or you get real excited about the idea. God gave that to you. How? He opened up your heart to understand. He gave you consideration of deep waters that you couldn't even touch earlier. That's how this happens. If you don't know how to order or manage your theological thoughts about God, the culture's got plenty for you to sub in. Plenty. Plenty. And it's dishing some very crazy madness out there. 2 Corinthians 10.5, I believe this is what this passage is talking about when Paul is talking to one of his church plans. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought, what does it say, captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is a fight. It's a fight for good theology, a right view of God. How can you destroy and capture Thoughts that are stupid if you don't even know they're stupid. How do you do that? You spend a lot of time looking at how God describes himself, how Jesus speaks regarding himself. You know, when I was a young man, my first two or three years in the Word, as a new Christian, I learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot. I was always in the Bible. I'm just by nature a reader and I'm a thinker. So I would, on a daily basis, go, huh, that's how you treat women. That's how you treat parents. That's how you treat your mouth. Wow, that's, that's what God thinks. And I would <laughs> take what I used to think out and put the new thought in. This is what it means to manage and steward your thoughts. And a lot of you struggle here because you don't spend any time even seeing how God thinks of himself. All you have it's what the TV tells you or what you've learned in college. And you don't even know that the stupid thought's a stupid thought because you've never had anything to compare it with. And I know how hard this is for many people. Luke, reading the Bible is hard. Theology and all that stuff, it's difficult for me. Good, okay, I'm with you. It, it can get kind of hard. But that's not reason to pull the eject button. It, it really isn't. Making babies is hard. Being married is hard. More areas we don't quit when it's hard. Sometimes you will have to study hard, labor in the word, to develop a good framework of this is what God looks like and let it replace the crappy theology that's floating around in our minds. And yes, it takes time. My last point is this. Meditation on God's wisdom brings purity to the depths of our being. It brings purity to us. Okay? Philippians 4, verse 8. This is a strong passage for us. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, purity, our purity, our moral purity, it doesn't come from any other place besides meditating and considering Jesus. That's where it doesn't come from school. You're not going to get it from seminary. 
Purity does not come from learning more. Purity doesn't come from cutting your cable off or getting you a third accountability partner or putting some software on your browser. That's not how purity comes. Purity comes by considering deeply and meditating on the person of Jesus and how he is better than what your flesh tells you you have to have. You've got to beg the Holy Spirit on a daily basis every day to help you with that innermost person, the deepest movements of your being. Help me rein that in, Lord. Just like you capture imaginary conversations, you capture these roaming, lustful, envious, rebellious thoughts, and you say, no. See, over time, we create these well-worn paths for thoughts to come in and leave. And we tell those thoughts, you can't live here, but you can rent. And only as long as you don't embarrass me. So we let the thoughts just do whatever they want. And they keep coming and coming and wearing a path down. Managing just means standing in that path and saying, "Mm -mm, no more, no more. Jesus is better than this. And that's a fight in and of itself, having a conversation with God. God, show me how you're better than this. I know you are. I know that's the right answer. But how? How? Because right now that feels better. Thinking about this seems better than you. You ask yourself, what am I hungering for? Why am I considering this? Listen, this is work that no one sees. This is why people don't do it very often. No one sees this kind of work capturing of thoughts, the subduing of thoughts. That's why we don't do it. We spend more time ordering our closets and ordering our finances than we do ordering our thoughts because those are things that people see. So I need to end this. Jesus finds a guy in a tomb who is tormented and he cannot think straight. And to some extent, that man is me. And to some extent, this man is you. But in his goodness and in his grace, he finds us hurting ourselves. He finds us debasing and shaming ourselves. He finds us out of our minds. He finds us where no one could subdue us. That's what the Bible says about this man. No one could subdue him. But God's grace subdues us. We gladly give ourselves over to God's profound, brilliant grace. And there are shackles that I don't want to break out of. It, it's, it covers me as a love to me. God is good. He has done this for many of you as well. These things we think, we don't own them. We just manage them. We steward them for his glory. Now for some of you, as I end, some of you, this sermon might have been a struggle because you find yourself far from Jesus. Right? The idea of Jesus is a struggle. The idea of giving your life to Jesus is a struggle as well. So you're skeptical, to say the least. There is an alternative. I don't even have to preach it. I'm just going to read it. God tells us what happens as an alternative. Romans 1. I'm just going to read the 21st and then the 28th verse. And this is how it reads. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What is this saying? It's saying God will give you what you want eventually. If you want to keep your thoughts, you want to keep them debased, you don't want anything to do with Jesus, he's going to give you what you want. He'll turn you right on over. That's what it's describing here. 
Your thinking will always be cracked. Your thinking will never be renewed. But the beauty of the gospel, and I can't say this with enough gravity, give yourselves to the person of Jesus. Give your lives to God. Don't walk. Run to give all of yourselves because he doesn't just renew your thinking, friend. He renews your whole being. You become a new creation, not just a new thinker, a new creation, a new everything. Collected in a nation of renewed people for his glory. Some of you, you are not far from Jesus, but you have impure thinking. You're impure. Whether it's a bitterness, unforgiveness, lust, fill in the blank. Something cruises in, you let it sit, and it leaves whenever it wants. And because that path is well-worn, it just keeps coming and coming and coming. For you, stopping it is going to be a lot of work at the beginning because it's subconscious now. Thoughts come in. You don't even know that they even need to be stopped. And then you catch it like, whoa, 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 I'm not supposed to be thinking about that. All right, stop. And it takes time. Let me submit that God is better. Jesus is better. God is so good, you don't need to look elsewhere. Now, that's work for you to do as you pray and as you wrestle with God. God, show me how you're better than this. I know you are. I'm just having a hard time making the connection. Show me. Remind me of your beauty. And he will do that. That's one of the chief, one of the chief MOs of the Holy Spirit is to guide you, encourage you, instruct you, and lead you. That's work that only the Holy Spirit can do. Some of you, you're just not careful with your theology. And those thoughts come and go, and you're like, whatever. I like what Kanye says. It's going to be what I say now, you know? Or I like what whoever says. They're so smart, you know? And they've got so many Twitter followers. It can't be stupid what they say, right? I mean, they've got like six PhDs, so it's got to be brilliant what comes out of their mouth. So I'll take what they say and replace it for, for Paul, because he's old, and he's like archaic. So, I mean, obviously, Mr. PhD is better than Paul, right? Listen, do the labor of just looking at the Word. Do the labor. You do the work. What does God say about God? What does God say about you? What does God call good news? What does Jesus find satisfactory? Do the work of laboring in the word and developing a theological framework so you could stop borrowing from culture and smart people. Okay? And then lastly, some of you are not encouraged. You have discouraging thoughts coming through, whether it's panic or anxiety. And I think that's probably most of us, right? Something to be stressed out about at all times. Right? Let me just tell you the good news. This is the news I always find myself at when I'm discouraged. I always, it sounds like a cop-out. I always end with this. Golly, this is so hard. I didn't know this was going to be so hard. But the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Okay, I'm going to start there. Jesus is not in the tomb. We win, right? We win. It can only get better from here, right? Yes. Okay. That gives me a starting place. That's the good news for us. The enemy's going to keep coming, and he's going to keep saying the same stupid thing over and over again. Surely your thoughts about God are wrong. <laughs> Where is he? He's not here. Surely your thoughts about God are wrong, and you're almost going to believe it. And then you've got to remind yourself the tomb is empty. That's proof that God never left. It's proof that God never abandoned us. It's proof that God never left us. Death has lost its sting, friend. Death is gone. The threats of the enemy are just empty threats. You've got to remind yourself that as God has collected you, 
a renewed person and a nation of renewed people to live, enjoy him, and give glory to God, a king who wins. Go ahead and stand with me because we're about to take communion and sing and pray. And as we take communion, some of you are new to this. We do it in plurality, which means we just go back in groups, families, missional communities, however we do, however you decide to do that, roommates, as we take it together, we pray together. You're not just seeing a lot of people leave. Our music's not bad. They're just taking communion. They'll be right back in their seat, okay? But as we do that, forget the mechanics of it. Just consider for a moment, this is broken body and spilt blood. Because God came into a place full of people who only thought of evil continually with broken minds, and he set us free by his broken body. His love for us joins us, totally despite us, to something far better, far better than what we're living in right now. God is to be magnified. He's to be worshipped. So this is a beautiful time for us to worship. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your communion. We thank you for songs. We thank you for grace. I thank you for the gospel, the good news of what you've done for us through the person of Jesus. I thank you for all of that. And even specifically today, Father, I thank you for this picture of the demoniac, a man who really represents all of us. I don't really look at this passage any longer and think, wow, that guy's super screwed up. I think, man, that really is just a version of me. Just a version. But Father, you've called us out of a darker tomb for we were spiritually dead. We weren't just crying out. We were dead. Spiritually dead with hearts of stone and you have put beating hearts in our chest. You've regenerated our life at your cost for our benefits. And we glorify and magnify you. Help us with our impure thoughts. Help us with our discouraged thoughts and help us with our heretical thoughts, Lord. Help us be good managers and stewards of even our thinking. What a hard process. What a long trek this is. But God, to your glory, to your glory. And Father, I find myself more and more down this path as time goes on and I enjoy you more. When I'm a better manager, I enjoy you more. It's so easy for me to see how much you love me through correct thinking, through meditating on good things that you have given us to think about. Well, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.